Hello, Duncan Green here with uh, a roundup of recent posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. I've been, it's been a while since I did a roundup. Um, I've been traveling in the Congo and uh, haven't had time, and that means they kind of mount up. I feel a bit like Charlie Chaplin in modern times, uh, trying desperately to catch up with the conveyor belt of blogs that go past my nose. But I'll do my best. I've got, I've got I think, about 10 to, to, to summarize for you. And, um, and some of the things that jumped out at me began um, with a really nice moment when um, I was down um, on the climate strike march in London a couple of weeks ago, heard some Malawian students speaking on the mic um, on the platform. And then when I got back to the Oxfam office, I realized that I found out that they were being invited by Oxfam. So I grabbed Jesse Nkoma and Isaac Nzembe and um, just sat them down for five minutes. They were exhausted and, and off you know, to do better things but just asked them to sort of give the message they'd been giving to the climate march. And they talked a little bit about the negative impacts on, in Malawi of things like variable rains and drought, but also just what it's like for two high school kids to suddenly appear, be speaking to 50,000 people in London. And I think they rather liked it. And they started saying things like they would quite like to go into politics and do this more often, which I thought was lovely. Um, the next piece was on a, a, a kind of a surprising and interesting conversation I've got involved in on open access. So I've always been a big supporter of open access. The, I've just been looking at the numbers on How Change Happens, which is an open access book, which are looking great. Um, but this is about open access journals. So there's been a big pushback to the fact that academic journals charge phenomenal amounts for uh, and anybody who's not working in a northern university struggles to get access to those things it's like 40 dollars just to read one article in a journal and no one can be bothered either to pay or to do the paperwork to get the money back even if your organization covers it so i thought open access was obviously a good thing but uh, the journal development and change has found a problem which is that um, the way journals have reacted to open access is to maintain their ridiculously high profit margins by charging authors. So they've stopped charging readers and started charging authors these things called APCs. I can't remember what that stands for, but there are payments of, you know, thousand, two thousand, even five thousand dollars to get your article published. So if you work for the LSE or some big northern institution, then the institution covers those payments. But what the development and change editors are saying is, well, what does this mean for southern scholars, scholars in the global south? who suddenly find they had to pay to get published. And the amounts are ridiculous. You know, um, a, a typical Ethiopian professor, according to one of the um, pieces I read, I, I read, earns about $400 a month. So they're supposed to cough up two, three, four months wages just to get one journal article published. So um, I, I was asked to contribute to this because I go on about open access. Um, and so the way we did it was we uh, put a, uh, contacted all the PowerShift's authors, the, the, the Global South contributors on the blog, got them to chip in some ideas, wrote a post, and, um, and then solicited more ideas, and then we're going to turn that into the uh, little piece for the, for, the, for the journal. The thing that came out most strongly was that actually people think this is just a minor point of a much bigger problem, which is the incredible domination of what constitutes knowledge of the knowledge um, ecosystem by rich people and rich institutions in the North. Um, and I think it's, it's, my overall view is that we should not, we, I still support global, global, uh, open access. 
I think people fastening on this to say, um, you know, open access is bad because it's excluding Southern scholars. I think they might just be just, you know, finding a neat argument to justify the status quo. But there are some interesting issues there which have to be dealt with in terms of making sure that people don't get shut out. The next post was, um, <clears throat> I went to a conference a few weeks ago of the uh, Effective States and Inclusive Development Research Programme based in Manchester University. And um, it was huge, like there was three days of wall-to-wall papers and, um, uh, and, and panels. Um, and I just could not imagine how I was going to summarise it. And then I had the brainwave of sitting down with the guy who's in charge, Sam Hickey, and asking him to summarise it and do a podcast. And I'm increasingly finding that podcasts are a great way to save a lot of time and pain and get the people who really know about something to tell you what, what they've been doing. So Sam uh, had to try and summarise uh, something like eight years of research in 20 minutes, which was quite a challenge for him, I think. Um, he partly responded by speaking very, very fast, but uh, it is very good, and I've done a transcript. Um, some of the things he picked out that, you know, I said basically you can't just, after five years, say everything is context-specific, it's all about power and politics, because that's what you were saying at the beginning of the five years. So what else have you got? And he, he came up with some interesting examples and, and ideas. So one is the he thinks there's a blind spot on ideas that all the people who talk about political settlements, political science, tend to, tend to act as if the only thing that matters to people is material interest. So you just have to find out what material interest people have, and that will explain their behavior. And that's clearly not how our own lives function, and it's not how politics functions either. Ideas matter. So they've done some interesting work on the importance of ideas as a kind of moderating influence on crude self-interest. Their conclusion is the state is still primary, but the, one of the interesting bits is that when you get below the level of the nation state, you find these little pockets of effectiveness, places where states, even in fairly sort of um, messed up countries, bits of the state work okay. And they've done quite a lot of work trying to understand and compare these pockets of effectiveness. Um, and uh, I think uh, one nice little example, comparing Ghana and Uganda on, they both found oil and gas about the same time, uh, and they managed them in very different ways. And at one time, Uganda, which was basically a sort of autocracy, was doing better. At another time, uh, Ghana, which is much more of a sort of competitive democratic system, was doing better. And you can learn a lot from that sort of natural experiment. So I think there's a lot in there. A lot of people have been listening to that podcast, uh, and I think it's worth a listen. Okay, um, the next po post was one of Maria Faciolince, my colleague on From Poverty to Power, one of her monumental roundups. She does these links roundups, which are absolutely phenomenal. And this one was looking for southern contributions and sources and ideas on surviving the climate crisis. So this was, she published this at the end of the climate week of action from the, uh, the end of September. And yeah, I'll just give you the sense. I mean, it's huge and impossible to summarize, but um, she looked at different Southern sources on framing the issue, on ways forward, on doing storytelling and platforms for exchanges, initiatives on reforestation and restoration, on how to confront extractive industries, and on using, uh, on democratic uses of technology. So that gives you a sense of the kind of ambition of her roundup. Um, which I thought was uh, really exceptional. I'm, I'm trying to get her to think about publishing these separately for, in some way because I think they're really useful. 
Next, we took a little, I, I did one of my much shorter and more um, silly links I liked, um, much less serious than Maria's versions. Um, mine, the highlights, I think, were someone has dubbed a, de a, a death metal version of Greta Thunberg's amazing speech in New York, and it works incredibly well. And Greta thought it was really funny and retweeted it. So that, that means I, you know, I think we're not being disrespectful, um, uh, and, I, and it's really, really good. But also in that links I liked, um, somebody's dug up Boris Johnson's, a letter from Boris Johnson's teacher at Eton to his father, which shows a remarkable prescience about the character of the boy uh, becoming the character of the prime minister. I have no idea if it's a spoof or if it's real. I like to think it's real. It's very good. Next up, we had Maureen Mukata. Um, uh, Looking at the way uh, women in Kenya are tackling malnutri malnutrition and a, a project she's been involved in, she's a sort of young activist in Kenya, um, on urban farming using sack farming, which is, you know, if people are living in really cramped conditions in shantytowns, they can still grow some nutritious vegetables using sacks um, full of earth and full of, you know, compost. And so she's got a, a project going and I just thought it was a kind of positive example, grassroots organization doing interesting stuff. On, uh, on combating malnutrition in Kenya. I was in Nairobi uh, uh, not long ago and I grabbed some of the most interesting people to do podcasts just to interview with uh, interview on their work. Uh, one of them was Njokin Jehu, who is the Pan-African coordinator for the Fight Inequality Alliance, which is a global alliance doing what it says on the tin, fighting inequality. And I sat her down and, and she talked a little bit about inequality as it looks in Kenya, where she, where she lives. Um, but also we got onto the topic of African feminism and the differences between African feminism and Western feminism. And I thought she was a very yeah, interesting and perceptive speaker. So uh, that's the podcast. We're nearly there. Not too many to go. Then uh, Eric Mead, who teaches at, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., um, had an interesting post on a book he's got out called Reframing Poverty, arguing that the way we sh think about poverty is not just shaped by data and stats and household surveys and all the rest of it, but it's about our feelings and our own personal experiences, either directly or through our families, because we're only two or three generations out of poverty, even in the rich countries. Those feelings and family histories shape how people perceive poverty, and we need to recognize that. And he, he divides the way people talk about poverty neatly into four sort of buckets, structural understandings of poverty, behavioral understandings of poverty, contextual understandings of poverty, and cultural understandings of poverty. And he works, with, when he's with his students, he gets them to identify which one they, they tend to default to, and then deliberately they have to use other understandings of, of poverty to try and expand their their grasp of that of that debate. I thought it was an interesting piece. A second uh, Nairobi podcast, this one with a, a global civil society guru called Ingrid Srinath from India. Um, she used to run Civicus, the big global uh, network on civil society. She now uh, runs the Center for Social Impact and Philanthropy at Ashoka University in Delhi. Um, and uh, I sat her down and asked her what on earth is going on in India. And she talked a little bit about the work of her center, and they, they basically got a huge knowledge gap to tackle. No one really knows anything about philanthropy in India and how it works. And there are none of those kind of industry bodies, those kind of networks which, 
which help NGOs and philanthropists kind of learn from each other and get better at their, at their function and represent them before government. So they're actually having to fill, not only are they studying the ecosystem, but they're having to sort of construct it or be part of constructing it as well. And then we got onto the situation um, for civil society organizations in India, which she describes quite alarmingly as open season. That anybody who wants to attack civil society organizations and NGOs has basically um, uh, got some degree of impunity at the moment and political cover. It may not be directly instigated by the state, but the state and political parties are doing very little to curb it. And that applies both to uh, Indian organizations and to international NGOs, which have been heavily sat on as well. And there's, it's really worrying. It's one of the big examples of this global phenomenon of closing civic space, which we're so concerned about. Finally, the last post in this sequence um, was on microfinance. Now, microfinance is a classic example of something people call the hype curve, where something uh, emerges and is celebrated as a sort of magic bullet, the answer to everything. People get Nobel Prizes. Everybody talks about, about X. And then some people start looking at it a bit closer and there's a sort of a, a busy industry develops to take it down and you get a sort of plummet in its popularity and then usually it bounces back to some kind of sensible middle ground where it's, people realize it's good for some things and not good for others i think on microfinance we're probably in the takedown period at the moment um, where a lot of people have looked at the hype and found that it's not substantiated um, this guy called milford bateman who's been doing this for years but i think he's his work and, and the work of other researchers is really starting to have an impact and we're starting to see some of the downsides in terms of the levels of debt that people take on because of uh, uh, their micro loan, micro credit and the problems they face repaying it. So this piece is, a, is it describes microfinance as a nightmare for the global south. I'm not sure it's quite that bad, but that's what they call it. And then looks at an interesting example from Sri Lanka of how women's organizations and cooperatives are trying to actually get it, put it right. The authors are Ailan and Niantini Kadegama, and they look at both the sort of self-help aspects of, of women's groups trying to get out of debt in, with microfinance, but also advocacy, a wider level of advocacy for write-offs, caps on interest rates, and sort of the, the, they basically find that there's a sort of a process of taming the more sav savage varieties of microfinance and hopefully that's the start of reaching some sort of equilibrium where you have, you can, where, you know, regulatory authorities distinguish between good and bad microfinance and we get rid of the bad stuff and the good stuff actually helps people. So that's the last piece I'm going to talk about and uh, I'll stop there. If you've stayed with me this long, have a good weekend and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.